Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host, Salim Qasim. Um, and joining me on this week's podcast, so firstly we have Rukshana, who is uh, who helped to produce and is going to be co-hosting the podcast. And uh, we're joined by Nazia Khartoun, who is a fitness specialist and founder of Fitness Reborn. Uh, she shares with us um, her experience growing up. Um, she's previously been an amateur boxer and um, is obviously a fitness enthusiast and, and works with um i guess you know clients uh from from all backgrounds but specifically talks a lot um and and deals a lot with mental health issues um and i guess specifically you know there are all the all the elements of cultural baggage that come from the south asian community in this space particularly pertaining to women but also men as well um and her own she you know she she very graciously shares her own um experience of dealing with and overcoming um, some quite severe mental health problems um, and and I, I guess you know just uh, as a source of uh, inspiration you could say um, for for people listening and just like you know a, a, a positive narrative when it comes to um, mental health and kind of getting out of quite a, a deep and dark cycle I guess um just as a little warning um there is mention of suicidal thoughts and obviously you know anxiety depression whatever else um but yeah without further ado here is um our conversation with nazia salam nazia salam how are you? Thank you very much. I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and Rukshana as well. I always forget to say salam to Rukshana. How's it going, Rukshana? Aww. All good? Because you've said it before already, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, so, so thank you for joining us um, on the podcast today, Nazia. I think um, just in terms of background, um, can you briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, my background is coming from, I'm Bangladeshi Muslim female, by the way, not, I don't need to add the Muslim part, but just adding the Bangladeshi to add emphasis to what my background is, I think it makes a lot of sense to what the journey has been about. Um, my background really has been a very sporty person, I've been very athletic from a young age, and being a Bangladeshi woman, you know, there's been a lot of restrictions on what we can and cannot do. And I struggled with a lot of um, eating disorder issues from a very young age, trying to follow this narrative of looking good and, you know, just trying to replicate what the magazine covers portrayed to me at a young age. And I was an amateur boxer in, I think, about 15 years ago, such a long time ago. And fitness has always been a part of me. It's been a part of me in terms of growing up who I identified with and it also had a lot of repercussions in terms of the society on a wider context of family and then trying to fit in into the Bangladeshi community in the normal way I guess as well um, and then my journey just like really shortly my journey just went from one thing to another I used to work in a nine-to-five job I think I covered a lot of admin jobs and I can't even name um, most of the companies I worked for and I just decided I wanted to take a detour and really follow my passion in fitness and see what I could do and we're going to remember this was about 10 years ago almost where social media wasn't so big 
And that journey also um, cost me my mental health, uh, my peace, my sanity. But Alhamdulillah, I'm here now. But along the way, I've, I, w- I witnessed myself going through depression, a lot of sadness, a lot of grief, not really understanding myself. But it all connects somehow. And Fitness Reborn, my company, literally came from a moment when I was in my pure darkness of depression. And I realized how much fitness was helping me without realizing the actual science behind it, without actually realizing the theory behind it. And the program was developed in a way to give people back their lives. And especially now where the pandemic is creating a lot of, how do I call it, mental health issues. It's more important now we speak about these things and what the program does as well for myself and for my followers. So that's a little bit of my background. (laughs) (laughs) A bit long-winded. That's all good. So um, I just want to touch upon, um, if it's okay with you, the sort of eating disorders that you have. I think it's quite important because we don't really talk about it, particularly in the um, South Asian community. Can you explain, you know, how they sort of came about? Why do you feel that you um, had... Uh, become prone to suffering from them Mm. and what was your experience when you were going through them I think when I was as a teenager we all go through this um, how do I call it the transition between growing up going into adulthood and everything and we're talking like I'm 37 years old now so we're talking about a time where there was no social media there was nothing but magazines and automatically as a woman we have this preconceived idea of what beauty is And what the magazines at the time did was just enhance my message in my head. And all I wanted to do really was um, look good at at an age where, you know, your body's changing, you're going through lots of emotional changes. And I think I was going into university at the time and I developed the eating disorder at the age of 17 without realizing I was actually embarking on this journey of an eating disorder I just wanted to look good I just wanted to look like the skinny girls at college I mean naturally as an Asian female I was quite broad-shouldered from broad-shouldered from the sports I did at PE I guess in school and I was an avid football player I loved sports it gave me a high And we left that. We didn't really encourage young girls to do sports when we went to college. So that was quite a bit of a change for me. And the only way I felt like I could manage my weight was doing things that shouldn't have been doing, like starving myself, um, making myself sick. But I guess as well, I think it's very important to make this point. Um, when I look back at who I was then and where I'm now, when people ask me what really triggered your eating disorders, we as a South Asian community, we put a lot of emphasis on looking a certain way, being a certain color for female. You know, we're grooming females from the time they're born to be the perfect wife, to be the perfect mother, um, daughter-in-law, sorry. So we don't really ever get to experience who we are as Asian females. And in my head, it was always, I got to look good to fit in. Otherwise, nobody will marry me. And this was then also, how do I say it, continuously 
repeating in my head through the influence in my environment when aunties, even your parents will make a comment about make sure you don't eat too much or they'll compare you to your other cousins. And those are the things that we didn't really, I didn't really pay attention to. I just thought, okay, I'm just an individual going through this journey. But that had a huge impact. And now I look at the toxic ways that I was matching to that narrative and why those things happened to me. It all makes sense now. And the eating disorder was one of the most darkest places I remember for years. Nobody could understand me. I was forever angry. I just couldn't make sense of it. So if if I can, can I just ask, so with with regards to... um the eating disorder you just you just said years i think for someone like myself for example who hasn't been through something like that what's the headspace like because i i assume um that either you don't reach out to anyone or when you do speak to people they don't really understand but what was what was the environment like for yourself in your own head and also with your family very very toxic and i remember I was very isolated. I come from a very big family. I'm the eldest out of, you know, six brothers and sisters. So it was very hard. And when you are starving yourself as well and over-exercising, your mood changes. You're not getting the right nutrition. You're not getting the right energy. You're constantly in this state of restriction and trying to control something. And one of my earliest memories of the eating disorder was you know, my younger sister was only about eight years old and I come from a girl, I mean, I come from a family of so many girls and the younger sister used to always come up to me and say, oh, Nazia, are you sick? She used to walk in on me when I was, you know, making myself sick. She would run back into the living room telling my family and I used to be so embarrassed. And it is a very personal thing. You can't talk to people and say, hi, I'm going through an eating disorder because nobody understands it. And also, you know, we never spoke about these topics back then in an Asian community. One, because our parents weren't educated. We didn't understand it. And we meaning people who went through it at an early stage. And it's mostly seen as a Western Caucasian female issue. And we're not really looking at certain cultures that struggle with it, especially with the influence of celebrities, certain people that we idolize and everything. So when I think about how I was in a headspace, very, very volatile, very, very angry all the time, insecure, not confident, feeling like I was very alone, even though I was in a big family, it just didn't make sense. Life didn't make sense at that age. Um, in regards supporting what you just said about it being a sort of white Caucasian mentality, there was actually a study done in 2008 by South Yorkshire Eating Disorders Association, and they found that UK-born individuals were more aware of eating disorders, whereas their parents, who hadn't grown up in the UK, were poorly informed for things like anorexia and bulimia specifically. And the conclusion was that um, the communities sort of harboured the feeling that eating disorders are a white people's problem mm-hmm. so um the fact that you you said that and it, i think the study kind of touched upon the topic that that hindered children's and young people's ability to receive the help they actually they actually need so i mean 
you know it's 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 funny on that i remember um years ago uh my mum used to get these magazines i can't remember what it was like you know the the, the standard kind of uh weekly magazines mm-hmm. and i remember seeing an article that that genuinely gave me nightmares at the time and it was about uh, a woman who had who was anorexic and had bulimia and all of this stuff mm-hmm. and you know it, it was it was the first time i'd come across uh this i was i was very very young and the the images were so kind of haunting but i always thought that it was like rukshana just said it was like a white people problem um and this doesn't you know affect our community it doesn't affect people in our community and i think it's interesting nazi as well when you're talking about your influences at that time um like you said there was tv and 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 magazines and whatever else but there wasn't social media um whereas i i think social media interestingly has that double edged sword where on the one hand you've got those kind of hyper influencers who have those thousands and millions of followers who who all look a certain way and dress a certain way mm. but then at the same time it's kind of given rise to that space that unfortunately our communities in a mainstream perspective don't fulfill where we're not having those conversations about mental health and eating disorders whereas now individuals are coming up and organizations are coming up that are trying to highlight this stuff mm. um do you think that I, I i mean you, you know you're you're older now but what what do you think your 17 year old self would have how how would you have embraced social media at the time with all of that stuff going on in your head would it have been a help or a hindrance do you think no absolutely not i think it was bad enough um having magazines and i remember britney spears was my idol at the time please no questions asked okay <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's crazy because and i i say this without any sort of um you know bitterness when britney spears put on weight and she went through her mental crisis i was so happy because i didn't I even think she put that much weight on so i was a bit i was a bit confused by it to be honest it wasn't that was, bad it was for me in my head i was like thinking even she goes through stuff and nobody speaks about these things it was like an epiphany moment and i don't know britney spears but i hope she's okay now but <laughs> You know, it's just an Which example. Is <laughs> <laughs> it's just an example of when we look at people on social media and what they I mean, I've been in an industry for in the fitness industry. I know the tricks and the traits and what fitness influencers they don't really really do much justice. They're not looking after the they have a duty. That's what I'm trying to get. At. They have a duty to serve their followers. and for me personally it's all about showing up as who i am being raw being authentic as much as i can talking about the issues that we females go through and maybe the men in our society and why fitness is such a good tool and when i have clients coming through the doors depression is the most main issue that i deal with and emotional eating people who don't feel good about themselves food is now become the most accessible drug that we have mm. the most important thing that gives us comfort for most people in their lives and we're talking about females of all ages at different times of their lives you know people who have been married not married single can have babies can't have babies um divorced females people who have gone through domestic abuse you know there's a lot to cover and one of the things social media isn't doing maybe is protecting the young minds protecting what they see and it's down to us 
to delete, block people who don't make us feel good yeah. anymore. Because when you understand how our mind works, the subconscious mind is so fragile. What you see as skinny or with a six pack, you think this is how you're supposed to be. Even I do it as a grown adult. I look at this and I think, oh, I want to look like her. And all these bodies and fitness influencers come with a trend. One minute, six pack is popular. The next minute, having a back behind is now the popular thing. Or having thick thighs. Or do you see, it's forever, it's nonstop. So when social media came in the last 10 years, it was a lot going on. It was like information overload. And I'm not sure, it is definitely a double-ended sword. And it is actually enhancing people's eating disorder and mental health even more whether we like to realize it or not i think it's important because you guys sort of mentioned about the social media aspect and there is a lot of i feel particularly in the south asian muslim community there's a lot of confusing conflicting messages about food so you know Mm. you you know people get offended if you don't eat food on their plate and then they'll refill it up and but then equally at the same time they're like oh yeah they'll shame you or just shame you for eating. Like, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Once I remember, I went to a wedding and um, I was just like, you know, really hungry, and um, I, I was just eating. And then one woman was like, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't really eat that much as a, like as a woman in front of other people." And I was, wow. it was an auntie, an auntie, yeah. And I was just like, to be fair, I don't think I was eating that much. But her her point was, you shouldn't really eat in general to like keep up this facade that you know. Is it, is she, she thought it was more of a manner thing. And I found that a bit a bit odd um, that she was expecting women to not eat at, at a wedding. Um, I, I think, I think, attitudes, actually, I think attitudes towards food in the community generally. Yeah. Um, and and we, we can all have a bit of a laugh about it, but there's obviously a very serious undertone at the same time. It's it's not healthy. Um, I, I mean, firstly, the food that we, we have on our plates, unfortunately, is often not healthy from a kind of community perspective. Um, but then it's also this this kind of toxic stuff of like, oh, why are you not eating three plates of food? And then when you do eat three plates of food, turning around and be like, oh, you've put on a bit of weight. Well, of course I've put on weight. Like you, you're you're force feeding me. This is what happens. Um, but but it's 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 this kind of perpetual cycle I, I think that we have unfortunately. Um, coming back to uh, Nazi, you were talking about social media and the responsibility of of kind of influences online. Um, and, and and you also mentioned you know blocking and deleting um, accounts. I think the difficulty with that, unfortunately, is that algorithms, especially on social media, work in that way. Where if you're if you're on and, and and what people do is right, they might not follow somebody, but they'll go on their account, they'll look at their pictures, and and they'll do it in a in a jealous or an envious way, or or you know for whatever reason. But the, the way that the, these algorithms work is that instagram or tiktok or whatever it is that you're using these days will will see that you're spending time on this kind of content and then serve you more of that content Mm. Um, that's the difficulty whereas before you know you had the option to pick up a certain magazine and to read certain articles now on your explore section on your suggested section on whatever app it is you're getting this constant reinforcement of content Mm. and i i think so for me that's where it's like there has to be like you said there's a responsibility on the influencers, on the content creators, um, that they need to to take up this kind of mantle of being responsible with their content yeah. and the way they do things. And just, I mean, just to share a story from like my own experience, 
so I've been on like a bit, you know, since lockdown started, I've been on my own kind of uh, um, health and fitness kind of journey. And uh, at some point at the end of last year, I got contacted by by a, a fitness coach on, on LinkedIn who said that he works with people who are, you know, busy, self-employed individuals, whatever. I was like, okay, cool. Let's check it out. Had a call with him. Um, and, and he was like, all right, let's, let's have like a free consultation at the beginning and we can see how I can help you on your journey and, and you know, set you up with the structure and all of this stuff. And so I told him, yeah, you know, I've already been doing some stuff and I've lost this much weight over this many months and like I'm in a good place and whatever. And he was like, okay, that's cool. But he goes, I, I, I need you to make a decision at the end of this phone call, whether you want to use my services or not. And I said, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. Like, you know, I, I need some time to think, right? And he goes, and then he suddenly flipped. He's like, oh, uh, like, what, what's wrong? Do you not make the financial decisions in your house? Does your wife control the money? Yeah. I was like, uh, no. Uh, he goes, oh, but you're, you're not, so you're not serious about your fitness then? Because, you know, it's only, and he, he was talking about like uh, over a thousand pounds. He's like, oh, it's only a thousand, two thousand pounds. That's not a lot of money. I was like, well, you don't know how much money that is for me. That could be everything. Yeah. Um, but anyways, to cut a long story short, by by the end of it, he was like, well, clearly you're not serious about your fitness, so goodbye. And we never had the consultation. And then the next day, and, and also he told me, you know, specifically that the weight that I had lost over that time period was no good. Two days later, he added me on Facebook and I saw on his Facebook, he was posting tips and suggestions, you know, for uh, w whatever it is, um, and like, you know, for health and fitness. And, and he specifically said that, you know, no amount of progress is too slow he goes the slower the better mm -hmm. and i was like this is the exact opposite that you said <laughs> to me on the phone when you were trying to kind of like emotionally manipulate mm -hmm. me into using your services and i'm just thinking these are the individuals who are supposed to be helping people in our community mm -hmm. or helping people generally right he, he was he was from the community he was a muslim guy but but that concerns me a little bit because like you said people are so fragile mm -hmm. when it comes to body image when it comes to health fitness food all of these things mm -hmm. and and it doesn't take that much to tip someone kind of over the edge and if someone's not um secure enough you can mm -hmm. very easily kind of manipulate them like do, do you mm -hmm. do you feel like there is that element yeah. to the industry as well oh 100 percent. i mean i'm just thinking about my own journey when i qualified as a personal trainer and I don't blame personal trainers as well, because you do this out of passion. You do this because you want to help people. And we all have a story. Personal trainers have their own story and they want to pass their message on, just like the way I do. And when I started in the fitness industry at the beginning, it was a very, very, very manipulative exchange and it was very toxic. And it was, if you don't take your health properly, you're not serious enough, just the way you explained it. And I realized at an early age, um, in that industry is there to profit out of our insecurities as well. And this is what I teach people, like especially the girls on my program, learn how to love yourself, learn how to move, learn how to nourish your body, learn how to nourish your mind, learn how to discipline yourself, learn why mindset matters, because the moment you take control of you, nobody can make profit out of you. So it took me years to educate myself, especially when I studied the neuroscience and the fitness aspect, understanding human behavior, understanding why people do the things that they do. And it trans the transition from going from a pushy personal trainer was now stepping into this compassionate fitness coach and giving people a space to feel, to experience, to get to know themselves and as mentors and coaches, it's very, very important for us 
not to get onto the journey of the client and let them be. And again, it's about resetting habits. It's about um, rewiring the subconscious mind and getting them to do the things that they've never done before. And, you know, when you think about your own self, how hard is it for you to change an old bad habit into a positive one, whether it's smoking, whether it's to stop eating cakes, junk food, it's terribly hard. And then to have somebody telling you, or oh, you're not good enough, you're not taking it seriously. It doesn't, it's a counterproductive approach. And, mm. you know, most of the fitness coaches, that's their background. And to have a few good fitness coaches who understand compassion and empathy, those two things create clients to change and transform. And then change is temporary. And then the transformation is a sustainable thing that we're looking for. So, yeah, I empathize with you on that one. <laughs> So um, you, you you sort of covered a few things that you do with your with your clients, um, and, and on social media you kind of um, talk a lot about sort of affirmations, um, about the people you kind of sort of uh, communicate with you, which will aid your recovery or help your um, exercising journey. Can you talk more about sort of affirmations and, and things like that? Things that people can do, um, sort of you know sitting down on their own and how that can help aid their, their journey, really. Yeah. I'm going to give you a quick client um, um, experience here, a testimonial that this lady gave me. Um, Zaf, a Pakistani lady, single mother, divorced, came from a very abusive background. And she was one of my most amazing transformations. She went from like 18 stones and dropped down to maybe about 12 stones in a space of 15 weeks. Yeah. She probably weighs less now. And when she came through the doors, and I want you to understand this, and this is something that we can all relate to. When you've gone through trauma and had wounds and scars that hasn't been healed, you're always going to feel you're not good enough. You're always going to feel there's a gap. And especially in an environment where we want instant gratification, nobody really teaches us how to love ourselves. Nobody's really there to champion mental health. And actually, Nobody's really there to speak to the South Asian community. This is why I use my um, social media platform to speak to those who need me to speak to, like in terms of motivating them, inspiring them. And this client, Zaf, came to me at her worst. She couldn't even pray. She couldn't go down into sujood. She had to use a chair. She couldn't play with her children. And what I realized at the core of her being was she always felt because of her weight she wasn't being the best mom so therefore it was having this um onset of feeling like a failure feeling like she was not good in anything her husband was abusing her then she divorced him there was no love coming in and we went through this journey of self-love discovery by using fitness as a tool and affirmations was a big one Affirmation is literally teaching you something new about yourself and unwiring the parts of your brain that is negative and getting rid of the self-limiting beliefs we have about ourselves. And by repeating the same thing, you end up eventually living in that affirmation. And her affirmation was, I'm good enough. I love myself. I am enough. I am strong. And every month we would change her weight affirmation. So where she was 18 stones, she would visualize herself at her perfect weight. 
And affirmations and visualizations for me has been the turning point for my clients. And also for myself, when I've gone from extreme depression, and you know, I was at one point, and I'm going to say this up front, you know, suicidal, I had suicidal thoughts, I didn't feel good enough to fit in, I felt like a burden, like a failure, nothing was helping me until somebody taught me about the power of affirmations and gratitude, and feeling good enough about myself overnight, things started to change. And I was like, wow, why isn't this then taught to other people? And the more I studied, the more I became aware and all the clients that come on the program is again showing me that this stuff works and we need to do more of it or actually educate ourselves mm. with it as well. But it's a combination of everything, your fitness, your health, your mindset, the way you speak to yourself, the way you champion um, everyday productivity, everything goes into this circle of what we call life as well. I was actually you, you briefly mentioned it there, but I was going to ask your your personal experience going from um, all of the the mental health issues that you had, and you just mentioned as well suicidal thoughts. How how like how do you go from that place mm. to actually, um, I guess, turning a corner mm. and 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 growing out of that? Because I I think. You know, for people that have been in those kind of depths and despair, um, it's not. Firstly, there's no hope at that point. Mm. But there never, there never is any hope at that point. But then you're also not open or keen or seeking any uh, support or advice or help. Um, so, so what was what was your experience like? You know, you, you mentioned that someone taught you about mm. affirmations. Did they kind of force force that? Uh, onto you or did, were you seeking it out what actually happened when did you kind of realize you needed to, to change I think anybody who goes through a dark time depression and we have to understand people who go through depression they're not choosing to be depressed at that point and I just stopped boxing I came from an extreme sport that was required that was requiring me to train seven days a week and I realized now speaking about it why I stopped boxing because I wasn't I was a woman Muslim girls don't train Muslim girls don't box who's gonna marry you what will people think and I stopped because I thought okay fine I'm sick and tired of this and I gave up I quit the sport and I, I so wish I hadn't and I wanted to give myself a chance if I'm really open about this, um, give myself a chance to maybe get married at the age of 30, 31. And I was feeling really left behind. You know, by the time you're 25, apparently a girl has expired her, you know, date and everything. And I was trying my best to keep up with my cousins, my parents' expectations, societal expectations. And it was too much in my head. And when you go from an extreme sport to doing nothing, you're obviously not getting that release of the happy chemicals, the endorphins, the serotonins and everything. It's not there fully. And when I stepped into that depression, I stopped praying. I was like, I, don't, I didn't have no faith. And again, this is something <clears throat> we South Asian, the Muslim community keep on doing. We label people. You haven't got good imam, imam oh, there must be something wrong with you, the jinn's got you, the shaitan's got you. And this is the last thing a human wants to hear when they're struggling with their mental health. 
and due to the lack of knowledge with depression and mental health because apparently as muslims we're exempt from that and what we need to understand as a humans we're going to have this experience we're going to be experiencing these emotions especially now in the pandemic and i was seeking help in my own way because you want to be rescued you want to save yourself and the bottom line of it is when i was going through the depression i was looking to get myself better and that journey started going to events going to motivational workshops i went to so many workshops i'm just so sick and tired of workshops now i will never go to one ever again and i clearly remember this one incident where there was this hypnotherapist by the name of Marissa Pays and she was on this stage and she was explaining how celebrities top businessmen CEOs um people we idolize are going through um addictions they're alcoholics drug addicts all of that kind of stuff and it was a drop penny drop moment for me at that moment because what she said on that stage was people don't feel good enough about themselves therefore they're always looking for the next fix i was like oh, hang on a minute i spent my whole life not feeling good enough because i wanted to be skinny to be validated i wanted to look a certain way so i could be accepted so in a way i'm glad i did that seeking because it allowed me to come out of my shell a little bit more and here i am and i've got a knock on the door can i answer it yeah yeah sure go for it <laughs> one second <laughs> oh, I've, never had a, i've never had a knock on my door hi thank you so much thank you yes thank you so much thanks <laughs> i'm so sorry that's fine <laughs> yeah so um i hope you can edit that out so yeah so understanding um there is no hope and there is no faith what made me feel even worse about myself because now I was feeling like I'm not a good muslim and the turning point was that lecture I went to and then using my prayers my salahs as a point of instead of asking I was grateful what were the things that was going good in my life at that given moment and it was hard work I'm not going to lie to you it was extremely hard work and I still got my notebooks where I created two pages of affirmations I'm good enough. I love myself. I am strong. I'm a good fitness coach. These things help me become well who I am today. It helped me recover. It helped me get out of my depression. It helped me ease the suicidal thoughts. And don't ever forget those things never leave you. I changed as a human being. I went from being a extrovert person to a very changed person. I'm still out there. but it changes your personality in different ways and i think we need to address that more than anything as well uh, just quickly it, it's really interesting hearing you you kind of i guess swear by this notion of affirmations mm. because i've 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 seen it and i've heard it talked about um but but never i guess uh in this way that it was kind of it, it seems to be the kind of main transformational mm. thing uh it, at the depths of your struggle mm -hmm. um which is quite fascinating what is in again i i feel like people in that headspace would always struggle to see the silver lining to see the positives how how did you manage to kind of almost engineer that headspace for yourself Uh, if i'm honest with you fitness has been my savior 
in all of my moments where I struggled with myself. And it was a beautiful instrument. It's a beautiful tool because when you decide and you discipline yourself to make a change, everything else changes in this space. And understanding neuroscience, the different parts of our brains that we're living from, and understanding where the negativity comes from and how we can control it by speaking well to ourselves. And I'm sure it's written in the Quran in some context form, be kind to yourself, speak nicely of yourself and others. And the more you understand in a holistic approach um, that we have control, that we have outmost control to change, it's like a different kind of power that's given to you. And by speaking to yourself as if you're speaking to a child, that's where the real transformation happens. That's where the real change occurs. And you know, like when I came out of my depression, it was so crazy. Like, and I also want to say I seek a lot of therapists and we shouldn't uh, underrate therapy and we should actually make going to see a therapist, counselors, a normal thing rather than thinking there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with every single one of us, whether we like to admit it or not. We're all beautifully flawed, okay? And when I went to my therapist, one of the things that she said to me was, you've become so unfamiliar with being happy. You now have to train yourself to become happy again. I was like, okay, that is a very weird thing, but it hit, it hit home. And I spent months seeking the small things that made me happy I started doing things that made me happy more and more and more letting go of the things that didn't work out for me um, working with my stress meditating breathing techniques doing a lot of things like journaling scripting those are the things that need to be done and you know slowly it changed life just became a bit more easier to manage I was able to express myself rather than repressing my emotions and when I came out of that darkness, one day I woke up and I was like, where is the sadness gone? I got so used to that negativity, honestly, that negative inner chuggle, where is it gone? And I was searching for it and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it was such a weird feeling. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, really, it's really encouraging and really, really nice to hear your, your sort of journey on that. And another thing I kind of want to, um touch upon is you do also work with um male clients not it's not just female clients and um body image dissatisfaction is definitely a growing issue i think amongst uh, particularly young migrant um british born south asian men in the uk and there's actually been research that shows that non-white men reported much higher levels of body dis dis sorry body dissatisfaction um and that was influenced by perceptions of masculine masculinity and and culture so with your male clients have you noticed a difference i mean is there do they have the same pressures of you know will i find a wife if i look x y and z um is there any sort of common themes that run run across or is it completely different things that you've got to work on i think with my male clients it's a different approach um, male, especially within the South Asian, we, uh, the men, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong as well, Salim, is this, again, like we are born into this narrative, what we have to be as a Muslim woman of, you know, getting married, having children, living into the stereotype. And as an Asian man, you, the breadwinner, the providers, this is what we saw our dads do. 
So they don't really take time out to address their own mental health issues that I've noticed in a very generic form. And, you know, mental health for men is something very personal. Again, there's a lot of pride not talking about feelings. Mm. And in the South Asian community, what I've noticed is there's a lot of repressed emotions, especially when it comes to body images because nobody really pays attention to what the man is going through. We have so much, and again, this is why I say social media has breeded a different kind of mental health disorder for everyone across the board. And I did this interview with a friend of mine from South Asian community speaking about body dysmorphia and how it affects mental health because they also have this pressure living up to looking good looking feeling strong looking good in terms of muscles six packs and i was really awakened by this conversation i had with a male friend and he asked me so what do you define as masculinity nazia what is the definition of masculine in your head and i said well tall handsome muscles <laughs> and this is what i grew up with in a yeah. boxing platform right and he said no it isn't and he totally turned around and reframed what alpha masculine looks like being the leader being somebody who provides and a man who's in tune with his emotions we categorize them as being soft or womanly or whatever so there's a lot of things we need to cover when it comes to the asian male body image because I hate to say it, there is a lot of toxic traits in our men as well when it comes to addressing their own body image, their ego, you know, even things like relationships, stereotypes. There's a lot that we need to work on. And I'm not an expert on this because um, I don't really work with men so much. But I, I, I always say this, if we're going to have empowered females, we must have empowered men it doesn't work when we just grow and elevate females and leave our men behind you know my father and bless him he he's a father of five daughters and he brought us up all like no different to men we played out no different to boys we played out he encouraged us to do things to educate us to make sure that we knew that we had a place in society especially for females from our background and to have a strong dominant figure like my father who pushed us it's very scary to see what men are struggling with at the moment and my father came up from a whole different generation of immigrants as well so our generation of men coming down as well we need to learn and unlearn and you know we call this the intergenerational trauma if we don't fix it now we're just passing this toxic trait onto the next generation and the generations after you mentioned uh, masculinity. I wanted to quickly shout out a previous podcast episode entitled The Blueprint for Masculinity. Not not just to you, but everyone listening. Um, so we actually, uh, we had said Hussein Maki on and he was talking specifically about the four different archetypes um, mm. of of the masculine. Um, and, and we went into kind of the, the, the proper forms and the shadow forms, which is what people often slip into. Um, and, and that's the kind of negativity and the toxic um side of things really really fascinating kind of insight into that 
but yeah i, I think you know th there are like you mentioned there are these these pressures on the on the male side when it comes to like you said being a breadwinner and and a lot of it is i think like you mentioned with generational trauma a big part of it is is looking at our fathers mm -hmm. um who often i think in a lot of families from south asian contexts are um a lot more emotion less um a lot more stoic in their kind of nature and being and you know their job is to provide for the family financially and put a roof over their heads but not be an emotional support not play with the kids all of that kind of stuff not help around the house and so there's obviously a huge shift now amongst our generation people who are born in this country who have kind of i guess different values and understandings of of dynamics in the home so th there is a a transformation that's going on but i think at the same time there are also these um these kind of narratives of what a man should be when it comes to like you said you know what what a man's body should look like he should be strong like everything you described tall and people like i'm a tall guy i'm six foot two um so i've never had this issue but i know i've seen amongst like shorter friends of mine that there is this kind of constant insecurity about looking short and being short and you know not wanting to be the smallest one in the group that kind of thing it these things exist but like you said I, i think you know with women it's probably um easier for women to talk about it with one another mm -hmm. whereas with men there is still this kind of expectation that men don't talk about their emotions and you know we 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 just keep a straight face about this stuff and and don't open up but slowly as you said very very slowly attitudes are changing um and you also mentioned earlier this this talk about therapy um and counseling and i i 100% agree i think you know this needs to be normalized and people should be able to say i've been to therapy or i'm going to therapy and and be able to talk about it. and i think only when people who are in those situations people that are in therapy or whatever talk about it with others and normalize it with their friends will others think okay this is an okay thing to do because my own my own perception is that back in the day if someone's in therapy they're they're at, at breaking point they need help but like you said very 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 beautifully that we're all um i can't remember what you said beautifully now. flawed beautifully flawed that's mm -hmm. it we, we are all you know in our own way we all need help in some way shape or form and i think it's just the only the brave only the brave people in our society actually are, are the ones that acknowledge that within themselves and go out and get the help that they need mm. everybody else is kind of too um reluctant or resistant to actually embracing that mm. um i wanted to just for like the last uh 10 or so minutes just from a a more fitness perspective um as ramadan is coming up um i cuz i i guess so, so my plan is just to i'm i'm going to i'm going to use this as a bit of free consultation actually let's do this so here's my current regime right so i'm i'm intermittent fasting so i'm only eating within a short hour like within 3 or 4 hours so ramadan in that sense is going to be relatively easy it will just be shifting my hours back but in terms of working out um what i guess what do you do and what do you suggest your clients do because i know a lot of people are very conscious of losing muscle or getting unfit in Ramadan and it's very difficult as well to work out whilst you're fasting. Mm -hmm. Um so what what what's the advice that you give uh to your clients and and to everybody listening? So and to me specifically. Sure. See, I struggle with Ramadan so much because my coping mechanism has now been taken away which is the gym, the fitness element. And I'd be pretty silly to make sure I can get up at 2 o'clock to get a workout done and over the years what i realized was fitting in 
fitness was imperative to my emotional well-being and also having a good fast the next day, especially when the hours are so long. And one of the key things I made a point about in Ramadan, as Muslims, we are so dedicated to the 30 intense days. To go without food or water is pretty hard. Not pretty hard, it's extremely hard. You need to have a different kind of mindset, discipline, but automatically we do it. Now, if you think about how we live our lives in the rest, the rest of the year, we don't do those things, the health conscious, the fitness conscious, we're not doing that. But Ramadan could be a beautiful kickstart. And this is what the Ramadan program is about. It's about understanding what we've gone through this whole year, the emotional side of it, and using the 30 days to reset your habits, the old habits. It's not enough, but it's still enough to get you to do something old and doing something new. And for me, I religiously, religiously, I'll be honest with you, I'm a bit crazy when it comes to the fitness during Ramadan. I have to fit it in after I've broken the fast, after the namaz, even if it's at 12 o'clock at night. Obviously, I'm not sure if we're going to the mosque now, but in the past years, and it was actually picked up by Channel 5 and Sky News in 2019, my Ramadan fitness program, um, where I was getting a group of females to make sure that they were moving. It's so easy to sit <laughs> at iftar time. Where you fasted for 22 hours some days, Celine, right? How can you possibly put on weight after 30 days? right? This whole month is to become aware of who you are, is to become aware of your consciousness. And, you know, the fasting brings up more emotions than we like to address, right? We're not just sailing by, we have to pay attention to what needs to be fixed within ourselves as well. And it's amazing when people say they put on weight, and it's about literally looking at, start planning now, Start preparing your thoughts about what approach you're going to do, take, sorry, and what's going to be different from the other years that you've literally put on weight. This is not the year to be gentle. You have to come out of lockdown in a way where you're prepared. And, you know, it's a blessing in everything. Lockdown eases off and we go into Ramadan. So we're going to be safe. We don't have to mix with the external world right now. But again, your food, how you're moving, how you're speaking to yourself is going to be important in the 30 days. So find a time to get, even if it's 20 minutes, to do something before iftar, if you can, obviously make sure you're safe and uh, the cons of um, exercising or being very, very regimental is that you can actually incur um, injuries and harm yourself. So I always say, make sure you've had enough water, you've fueled your body and then try to do something um, after about three to four hours, not even three to four hours, two hours max and just get something in, get a fitness session in, get some um, endorphins running in, and then you actually, you're more productive for the next fast, you're more in control, and then you can just have a better fast rather than just being sluggish and sad and dragging your feet. You've previously said uh, in another interview that um, sometimes British, particularly British Asian uh, Muslim women, we tend to make excuses for um, not exercising and a lot of that comes into the fact that we have a lot of responsibilities we're working looking after children um there's more for us to do so in 
sort of taking into consideration what you've just said, how can particularly those people with that kind of lifestyle, how can they make sure that even during Ramadan, especially at a time when they need to be extra fit, how can they encourage themselves to, to do that? See, this is what I say to people. Islam is such a beautiful religion. It's a beautiful guideline. It's everything in this textbook, right? And we neglect to read it. We neglect to understand it. Ramadan is all about mind, body, soul, right? And when we understand our Prophet, peace be upon him, how he had led his life, we're not doing half the things that our Prophet did back then. We're not even doing maybe an ounce of it. And in Ramadan, we all become very holy. And this is the point is, we need to now find and reframe the way we look at ourselves. And when people say they can't fit it in, I respect the mums. I respect them so much because I'm not a mum, but I have a nephew. I can see how much time is consumed by looking after children. But I also encourage looking after yourself, self-care, self-love is important because if you as a woman is not nourishing yourself mentally, physically, spiritually, how are you then giving to your children? How are you giving the best version of yourself to the family that need you, your husband, your job? And you know, we're doing multiple roles now in today's society as Muslim females as well. So you have to just make a plan, execute something that will work for you. And the best way is hire a personal trainer, go on a plan. So that, per, that fitness coach is taking away the thinking process of what to do. You just follow. How easy can it be? Your task is now just to find the energy to do it and just get on it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I, I, I think, you know, with that as well, not to obviously take away from personal trainers, but, but there are the, the, the beauty of technology is that there are so many different things that you can do. Like there's Couch to 5K as an example. Um, mm-hmm. that I know people have embarked on and 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 I've I've seen people kind of that becomes the beginning of their own uh, fitness journey and and there are so many different ways into it now but I think it, for, for everyone there needs to be a spark so for for like mm-hmm. myself what happened was when when the first lockdown kicked this is how I started running uh, when the first lockdown kicked in um, you know we were allowed half an hour of outdoor activity it was like prison we were allowed half an hour of outdoor activity a day and although I, I was more than happy in my previous pre-pandemic life to just go from home to the office and then back home and not see the outdoors, I felt like the only way I'm going to survive this pandemic is if I get my half an hour of outdoor activity. Yeah. So I decided to start going for like short runs. Yeah. And, and that just became like a, a, a thing. And it was nice. And, you know, so, you know, once you start and like you said, with with fitness and you've mentioned that it's been your kind of your savior, your saving grace at all times. I think you know the 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 chemical biological impact of the endorphins that kick in and like actually feeling good and all of that kind of stuff it, it becomes like you said you 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 become almost attached to to that side and and it becomes almost necessary so like right now when I haven't run for 2 or 3 days I'm I'm thinking what why like what's going on it's been it feels like it's been a month um and and it just becomes like this very positive cycle I think and and I think the most difficult thing for people is 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 taking that first step um and like Rukshana mentioned um you know people often will have excuses and there are always legitimate excuses as well I think you know people shouldn't be too hard on themselves but um but but, but then Nazia like you 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 
very aptly said as well that you know you, you have to take time for yourself you need mm -hmm. to make time for this specifically and I, and I always say like you know if you're watching uh two Netflix episodes back to back you could very easily just watch one <laughs> the, okay. the, the rest of the time go out and do something you know f follow a video on YouTube or whatever like a yoga video or like a light workout as I said technology is amazing we have all of this to hand um but yeah I you know Nazia thank you um very much for all of this we've we've, we've covered a lot of ground um but it's been fascinating and obviously you've shared a lot of your own personal experience so thank you very much for opening up I know it's not a, a straightforward or easy thing we don't take it lightly that you're just you know talking us through pretty much the darkest time of your life um but you know like you said I think inshallah you know your story can can help others and, and other people who are struggling in that way can see um a way out from it oh, thank um, you. I, I guess if there's if there's anything you want to kind of end with otherwise we'll, we'll call it a day but over to you I think my ultimate underlying message is um, self-love is actually the most best gift that you can give yourself. And again, use fitness as a tool to just get started. Once you start, you'll find it's addictive to mastering you, your emotions and your physical health. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. So that was our conversation with Nazia. Um, I think for me particularly what was quite interesting was this notion of positive affirmations, which like I mentioned to her, I, I, I kind of thought and found or, or you know, believed it to be quite a cliche thing, but it seems to have you know quite a profound impact or has had a profound impact on her. Um, so I guess it goes to show the, uh, the, the potential it has for actually uh, bringing about change um which was which was really uh quite eye-opening um and that's it I, I i think i'm gonna put the the link to the the ramadan fitness um program that she's working on in the description um so feel free to check that out um and join us next time for another great podcast uh be sure to subscribe and give us a nice rating if you can thank you very much take care